Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. If you had to live with just one good eye, which one would you pick? That's the impossible decision some people behind bars in Illinois have had to make. And that's because of something known as the one good eye policy. We found doctors testifying, essentially, that they had denied eye surgery because one good eye was considered sufficient for the daily activities of a prisoner. We'll break down that story and the latest action from the state to change it later in the show. But first, have you ever heard of victim compensation? When you or someone you know is the victim of a violent crime, your life can quickly get turned upside down. You might be dealing with post-traumatic stress, pricey medical care, or even a funeral. Well, here in Illinois, there's a fund that's supposed to help crime victims and their families cover some of those costs, but the system isn't working. Survivors in the state are some of the least likely in the country to apply for victim compensation and services. And those who do apply face long waits or denials because of the strict qualification requirements for the fund. I spoke with Bertha Purnell. She lost her son to gun violence in 2017. She's now a speaker and community organizer for the Institute for Nonviolent Chicago and founder of the advocacy group Mothers on a Mission 28. We'll hear her story in a few minutes. I also spoke with John Mackey. He's local, state, and government best practices director at the Alliance for Safety and Justice and author of a recent report on victim compensation. He started off with a breakdown of just what the Victim Compensation Fund is. To begin with, you know, most people probably don't know about the Crime Victim Compensation Program. However, all states have programs like this. They're partly federally funded. Our program is administered by the Attorney General's Office and the Court of Claims and the Secretary of State's Office. And the basic intent of the program is to help crime survivors who lack other means to pay for real vital services, things like uh, relocation, lost wages, funeral expenses. And when this fund was created, there were requirements Uh built into it who could apply for it, who could access these funds. Break down some of that for us. These programs started kind of emerging throughout the country in the late 60s, early 70s. Illinois was an early adopter. Our program was created in 1973. And really from the beginning, it had a kind of criminal justice framework. So it looked to serve victims who were, you know, quote unquote, innocent. It tried to uh, encourage really through coercive practices, cooperation with law enforcement. And that might sound good. I mean, we want to see cooperation with law enforcement. We want to make sure that people who've been injured are taken care of. The problem with these requirements is that they actually dissuade some of the most vulnerable and victimized people from accessing services. So when someone's victimized, um, you know, they're often scared. Sometimes they might be worried that if someone sees them talking with law enforcement, that they can be in danger. And so, you know, for some of these reasons, you know, some of the most victimized people, um, certainly in places like Chicago, where they have high levels of violence, they're going to be really distrustful. And the policies, the laws, the practices which govern these kinds of programs really exacerbate that distrust. Well, it's interesting you said victims of crime who are seen as innocent. Explain how that works. Sure. So when this program was created, we were at the beginning of what we now call mass incarceration. And I think it's really important to appreciate what a profound shift that was in our culture, in our laws, in our policy. Uh, you know, we now have the world's largest prison population. Um, we are the most punitive democracy in the history of civilization. And that has radically changed our system. So, But before that happened, the United States had a prison rate of incarceration that was really roughly equivalent with most European countries. And so when we made that huge shift, we really kind of brought with it a framework of punishment that the most appropriate and effective response to crime wasn't so much to try to heal people, to help them with services, but it was to punish lawbreakers. Um, You know, and there's certainly a a role for that. 
But the problem with mass incarceration, over-incarceration, is it's so overwhelmed our response to crime and violence is that it's kind of the only way we've seen this issue. And it really distorted our understanding of what victimization is. So you mentioned the idea of crime victims being innocent and how that works with this compensation fund. Just explain that a little more for us. I mean, I think it comes from a real common intuition, right, that we want to make sure that people who have done nothing wrong but who are injured through crime are able to heal from their injury, you know, heal from crime. The problem with that is victimization is also often incredibly messy. So take domestic violence, for example. Early on in this program's history throughout the country, the program tried to say, you know, if you are living with your abuser, if you're in some kind of relationship with him, you don't get these services. You know, that's just not how domestic violence works. And we know that now. Lots of other forms of violence are the same way. Victimization is a kind of a community phenomenon often. It's highly concentrated. And so when we're trying to like, you know, first assess blame, we're not really understanding the phenomenon of victimization. And I think a more appropriate way of looking at victimization is more through like a medical lens. So when someone's sick, when someone's been hurt, the goal is to first heal that person, to provide them with services. That, I think, would be a much more effective way of approaching victimization. Um, but that's not the way our current system works. Um, Ms. Purnell, you lost your son, Maurice, in 2017. Tell us about him. Yes, I did. My son, Maurice, um, the apple of my eye. He was the youngest of my five children. In December of 1988, I was the mother of two and pregnant. By January of 1989, I was the mother of five. Maurice was the youngest of my triplets. Um, Growing up, Maurice suffered from what they called separation anxiety. He was a hyper kid. Did a lot of things in school he shouldn't have done. He'd finish his work and aggravate everybody else. The aggravation didn't stop there. When he got home, he aggravated his brothers and sisters. Uh, And he had some problems with the law. He served his time. He had moved to Elgin, raising his children. On the day my son was killed, I had asked him to come to Chicago to do some things for me in my home. We had a great day, spending time with him, the kids, and his fiance. Approximately an hour after he left my home, not even a mile from my home, he was shot and killed. Days following that, my life was a blur. Um, Just trying to get through the day was extremely, extremely difficult. I recovered a memory this year about the crime victim compensation form. I didn't know how I got it. I couldn't remember. But it came to me a couple of weeks ago that it was dropped off my home. No explanation as to what to do with it. None of that. With a message saying, take it to the funeral home. That was the memory that I remember from my access to this form. I think with the new attorney general that we have, the fact that he has taken interest to look at some of the complaints that has been put on his desk since he has taken office, where we have been re-traumatized just by trying to have access to this intimidating form. 
And with the report that John has authored, a lot of that is spelled out. So I am a nurse by education. After my son was killed, I could not function in that capacity anymore. I used to run to the scenes of murders. When I heard about him, I was running. I need to help somebody. I was there. And I kept seeing the same man at every scene. I finally got a chance to talk to him. He was the executive director of the Institute for Nonviolence. So I went to work there because they help people access this form. So I'm hearing two things. One is that you reached out for support to pay for funeral costs. Mm -hmm. But then there's this other piece about ongoing support for your mental health, the health of his children, his fiance. Were you able to access funds for that at all? No, no. I was able to access mental health for myself through my insurance, through my job, not through the form. Actually, at that time, I didn't even know that was an option because none of that was explained to me. John, in your reporting, talk about some of the places where this system is breaking down. Well, I think Bertha's story really illustrates kind of some of the ways in which this program, which is such a elegant and I think beautiful program for survivors, just doesn't fit the needs of survivors. So when someone's a victim of a violent crime, they're scrambled. Their life's in complete disarray. They're traumatized. The way the system currently works, it's really complicated. It's really confusing. There's language around fraud, things like that, you know, which, of course, we don't want to have people fraudulently access those funds, but survivors are often don't have the bandwidth to navigate really complex systems, and they need someone to kind of help them through that. So, you know, when Bertha mentions the form just dropped off at her house, I mean, most people I talk to had no access to the form at all. So even that Bertha got the form is pretty incredible. John, when people survive violent crimes or you have families who are, are reeling from that experience, how do they first learn about this fund or, or get access to the form that might give them access to these funds? Um, I mean, this is a hard question to answer. So in research for this report, I learned, you know, most people, if they hear about this, they might hear about it um, from word of mouth. Um, they might hear about it in the way Bertha did if someone kind of brought it to their door. There's no, um, you know, uniform kind of delivery mechanism. This kind of service needs to be embedded in communities. It needs to be delivered by people from the community. You know, oftentimes, you know, when someone has uh, experienced a really horrible victimization, I'm going to quote Bertha here, you know, they need to see someone um, who looks like them, who has some sense of what they've gone through. Um, see, seeing someone from the government, I mean, that could frighten them. The real important point is, you know, right now, this is delivered in a very kind of careless, unsystematized way. We need to have a system that's set up to deliver it in a trauma-informed way that's culturally competent, that's meeting survivors where they are. I think the system right now really relies on victims taking a lot of their on, on their own initiative, navigating really complex systems, having a, all their records in order. And that's just really not the case for most survivors. Bertha, tell us about the importance of providing these services and the role it can play in interrupting violence in community. I feel that this form is really important. Not only is that funeral home component for a lot of the people in my neighborhood because they don't know that this form can pay up to $7,500 toward funeral services for their loved ones. They're traumatized. 
we have to be incredible messengers so that when we take these forms, we can let them know. You can also have access to services like mental health treatments. If the crime occurred in your house, there's also a cleanup portion that you can apply for these services. So when a person is what might be the worst time of their life, there's some things that are in place in this form that if they know about, it would reduce some of the trauma that they're going through. Also, if they know about this form, they don't have to worry about, you know, we got to go out here and do whatever we have to do to get this money to bury somebody. Or that they're so fixated on what has happened, they're going out there for revenge. We can get them some of the help through this form where they don't have those things to worry about. PTSD is real. You know, and when people are stressed out, they do things that they should not be doing. And they don't do it because they're terrible people. They're doing it as a survivor mode. And with the form, if it's used correctly, people are notified about it. That helps reduce some of those things. John? Brother's absolutely right. You know, research shows that when survivors are able to meet the most immediate needs around victimization, things like, you know, unpaid bills, funeral expenses, um, they're less likely to develop long-term symptoms like depression, uh, PTSD. I think it also speaks to a much larger problem. One of the biggest drivers of violence, you know, is unaddressed trauma. And if our society can do a better job, you know, meeting survivors where they are, providing them with those kinds of immediate services, but also just reaching out to them and apologizing for what's happened and helping them however they can, this will have a big impact on violence. And it also, I think it'll create trust where there's no trust right now, which is absolutely essential. Now, there are 23 recommendations in the report. Just tell us a couple of them that you're hoping the attorney general will take on. Uh, The process takes about anywhere between one to two years to complete. So for people who really have nothing, that's far too long. If you're waiting to be reimbursed and you have no money and you don't know you'll ever get reimbursed and you only hear about that, you know, one to two years later, that's just not usable. So that's one big thing is just making sure it's quicker. The other things we like to see is to move away from that kind of criminal justice framework. Unless there's evidence of some kind of fraud, you know, which we certainly we don't want, this fund should seek to serve all survivors. I think in many ways, one of the most important recommendations is to put the survivors who need the form at the center of this policy. So that would be, for example, you know, we recommend creating an oversight board. And this is best practice. This is something that the Office for Victims of Crime would recommend. And that's the federal office that actually funds this program. But we think this program should be overseen by providers, mental health professionals, but especially people like Bertha, who've experienced this kind of victimization and can kind of help inform the policy um, to make sure that the Attorney General's office, the Court of Claims, have the feedback they need to make sure the program's doing what it's statutorily intended to do, which is meet the needs of survivors. And Bertha, from your perspective as someone who's had an experience with this program, what would you like to see change? I would like to see that these forms are given to people when they need them, And when the messenger comes with the message that they are really informed on how to fill out these forms, it could be really intimidating. And we have to realize that these people are at maybe one of the worst points of their lives. So to go through with them at the rate that it's acceptable to them to get it in on time, that's one of my biggest things because... We don't want to re-traumatize someone just trying to get access to care. And we want to know what we're talking about when we take these forms to the people when we take it to them. 
So, Bertha, as I mentioned, you're a community organizer now, and this came out of your experience with your son, but describe some of the work you're doing in the community. In the community, I work with families who have been affected by violence. We meet people where they are. If you need to go to the funeral home, we're there to do that with you. We serve as a resource for help. Uh, We also work with trying to make our community safer, be it uh, providing resources, connecting you to who you need to be connected to. In the Austin community where I live at, it's a high return rate for people coming back from jail. We try to work with those people also to make sure that they have what they need to succeed as a viable citizen in the community once they return. John, you've authored this report now. You have the interest of Attorney General Kwame Raoul. What comes next? I think just the advocacy to make a change. These changes in many ways are, they're in line with just the initial intent of the program. Nevertheless, you know, we know this will be difficult. You know, this this won't happen overnight. So, um, you know, we're really excited and just commend the political courage of AG Raoul. But now begins the hard work of making this happen. Some prisoners in Illinois who've needed eye surgery have had to make an almost impossible decision about their health. Do I want my left eye fixed or my right eye? Others who needed surgery on a single eye were denied treatment. That's because under the so-called one good eye policy at the Illinois Department of Corrections, prisoners were only entitled to one functioning eye. Here's one prisoner talking about his experience. He says if you got one good eye... That, that's it. That's good enough. That, that's what the eye doctor told me. After a WBEZ investigation shed light on the policy last month, the state is taking action. For more on the story, we checked in with WBEZ criminal justice reporter Shannon Heffernan, who talked about how she first got wind of this story. It had been a rumor I'd heard for a long time, people saying that Illinois has this one good eye policy, but it's really hard to nail down facts in a prison because you can't just walk up to people and ask questions, right? They're behind bars. Um, But a a listener to the station um, reached out because they had a friend who was behind bars who they heard had been denied. And then we were able to follow up with that prisoner and nail down the details. And that led us to dig through some court filings. And we found several prisoners who had sued the state over having their eye surgery denied. And as part of those lawsuits, we found uh, doctors uh, testifying, essentially, that they had uh, denied eye surgery because one good eye was considered sufficient for the daily activities of a prisoner. So once we had that, that was enough to start uh, digging in and trying to figure out what what was going on. What does the one good eye policy actually say? That's a great question, and the answer is kind of complicated. So as part of those court filings, we were able to find a copy of the policy that has said, essentially, cataract surgery can be denied so long as the prisoner has sufficient vision in their dominant eye. But we didn't know if that policy was still in effect, and we couldn't confirm that because when we asked the Illinois Department of Corrections under an open records request for a copy of that policy, they denied us because they said it was a, quote, trade secret of the company, the private company that runs healthcare in Illinois prisons, Wexford. We also reached out to Wexford and asked for a copy of the policy. And they also denied us a copy of the policy uh, based on this trade secret status. What what did you make of that term trade secret? Well, I, I think that that's problematic when, from a transparency perspective. When, uh, 
services that are being delivered on behalf of the state, we can't actually see and we can't actually evaluate. I think it makes it uh, very difficult to uh, hold the system accountable if you don't have the information you need to know uh, exactly what they're they're doing. So Wexford, this is the private company that manages health care in Illinois prisons. What can you tell us about them? Uh, Wexford Health Sources has a 10-year, $1.4 billion contract with the state of Illinois. Um, but this one good eye policy, it, it's only one thing that they've been criticized for. The ACLU of Illinois and Uptown People's Law Center uh, fought a lawsuit over health care in Illinois. And as part of that lawsuit, a court-appointed monitor, so an independent expert, uh, I should say a court-appointed expert, looked into it and they found that one-third of the deaths in Illinois prisons were preventable. Mm. And the state has now gone under federal oversight for the health care it delivers in its prisons. Um, Other states have also had issues with Wexford. Florida, for example, terminated their contract with Wexford um, because of the poor care it was delivering. So I think this uh, one good eye issue, it's really just a, a sliver of what's happening with Wexford. Well, you talked to one woman who had cataracts in both eyes. What happened to her? So, yes, Paulette Fiedler, uh, she had cataracts in both eyes, and she was asked to choose which one she would get fixed. And this was a major concern for her because she also needed glasses, and there were some complications with her vision that made her worried that she'd pick the wrong eye and then she wouldn't be able to uh, see at all. And Paulette was a very uh, avid reader. It's, I think that's true for a lot of prisoners. It's kind of how they are able to pass the time behind bars. And uh, so, so, so she was really alarmed. Um, we have heard from a friend of Paulette's that since our story ran, uh, she's been granted um, the ability to move forward uh, with surgery for her second eye. Um, but we haven't talked to her directly, so I'm still eager to hear more uh, details about that and confirm it. Put this one good eye policy into a, a broader context for us and, and what the state of Illinois says they're required to provide for incarcerated people in terms of health care? So I think this is a really good question. And this is some of the feedback we saw online from people who read the story who said like, hey, my husband, my sister, whoever had trouble getting uh, eye surgery. So why are we obligated to give this to prisoners? And I think one thing that's important to remember about prisoners is the only care they're going to receive is care that the state gave them. They don't have any other options to pursue. So our obligation to their health and their safety is a little bit different because they're literally in the state's care. Um, I will say that the state has since taken action on this. They sent an email uh, to their staff saying that uh, prisoners should not be denied eye surgery uh, on both eyes if a doctor recommends it. No, I think that's important, though, to think about that language there, because we reached out to the ACLU of Illinois, which has done a lot of work on healthcare in Illinois prisons, and they they said that this was a, a victory for them. That was an important move. But what doctor is doing that evaluation? Is that doctor qualified? Is that doctor making a good decision? And um, a spokesperson for the ACLU of Illinois said, looking at the history they've had with Wexford, that's a concern. And if the state really wants to see a change, they'd have to stay on top of how it's actually playing out on the ground. So there's been a shift, but I, I think that it's something that it will be important to keep an eye out for moving forward. You know, as you're describing this policy, Shannon, it, it makes me wonder whether it was a policy or a practice and in and, and, and that, I mean, the mm-hmm. state said, this is what we are providing for prisoners or Wexford saying, 
this is a practice that makes sense from a cost standpoint? So I think that's a really good question. And it's one, honestly, we have a hard time answering because we cannot see a copy of that policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we reached out to Wexford after the story and they said that they had, uh, that, that, this, that, that there were doctors that had misunderstood their written policy, that they're not going to be changing the written policy because that's not the problem. It's just that their written policy had been misinterpreted by some. Um, so if you believe them, it's a practice that was based on a mis understanding of the policy. That said, we still cannot see a copy of that policy. So it's difficult for me to honestly uh, evaluate that and 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 know. And I think that's one of the problems when these uh, documents are concealed from the public. You mentioned the rate of uh, avoidable deaths in the Illinois prison system under Wexford's um, administration of, of health care. What are some of the stories that that stand out to you? Uh, I remember some cases, and I I should just caution before I tell these stories that these can be difficult to listen to. So if you're sensitive, maybe quiet your radio for a little bit. Um, I remember there being cases of prisoners who had swallowed objects and um, repeatedly requested care and been denied it or been denied insufficient care and and died as a result of those injuries. Um, We also examined a particular case of somebody who uh, had a a heart issue and was given medication that the um, expert who evaluated their case had no idea why they had been given and that medication might have contributed to their death. Um, And we also spoke to that person's family. And and one of the things we found is families often got very little information about how their loved one died. And um, for anybody who's ha- uh, lost a loved one, you know, people sit by their bedside. They try to get as much information as they can from the doctors. They try to be an advocate. But these people are separated from their family. So the question becomes, well, who's looking over their shoulders and making sure these people are getting the care that they need? And, and how much power do prisoners have to advocate for themselves in this system? Well, they can file grievances. Um, since that lawsuit passed, I think that there's a little bit more weight behind that and a little bit more ability for the state to evaluate those uh, denials. But I, I think it can be I think it can be really difficult to be a self-advocate, especially in some situations where you are uh, sick enough that it's hard uh, to uh, speak up for yourself and it can be actually quite difficult to file grievances in prison and navigate that system. So imagine then doing that when you have uh, a a physical ailment or a mental health issue you're wrestling with. It becomes hard. What do we know about how the state is evaluating its relationship with Wexford in in light of some of these concerns? So I think that's a question that um, we're going to be hearing more conversation around. This uh, 10-year, $1.4 billion contract that Wexford has with the state, that's up in 2021. Um, I spoke to State Representative LaShawn Ford, who's been active on Illinois Department of Corrections issues, and he said he really thinks it's important that the state make some important demands in the next contract to make sure that people are getting the care that they need. So you have a governor in office now who uh, says he's fairly progressive on prison issues. So I'll be curious to see how that contract negotiation goes, if there's any pushes for changes, and um, also what this federal oversight is going to mean for health care in Illinois prisons.
That's it for today's Reset. You can stay connected to the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset, and I'm at Jay White Pub Radio. You can also leave us a suggestion for a segment for the show at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. But that's all for today. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again tomorrow.